Coliseum. Good evening. We've been experiencing the exaltation of the deeds and teachings of Jesus Christ together. Amen. Here we go. The Holy Spirit has been the director of this vivid adventure. And Jesus is the sole superstar. Mm -hmm. Luke's thorough essay was released in two scrolls because of the length of this amazing story. While there are two scrolls, it is definitely one story with one purpose and theme. In the first release, we all became acquainted with the actions and teachings of Jesus Christ prior to his glorious ascension. In the sequel, we are becoming aware of the actions of the body of Jesus Christ after his ascension. This plot has been building since the opening verses of scroll number one that we call the Gospel of Luke. In that chapter, a virgin is overshadowed by the Most High and is told that her son will sit on the throne of David. Even more amazingly, the announcement is that his kingdom will last forever and have no ending. Our studies have picked up in the second scroll and come immediately after the son of David was killed publicly. Better yet, in the greatest plot twist of all time, he was resurrected publicly. Our plot has been developing steadily with excitement and tensions rising in every chapter. The first chapter affirmed that the kingdom of God was still entrusted to Israel, and the timing of that kingdom's ultimate triumph was not yet revealed. Furthermore, we saw 12 ordinary Jewish men confirmed as the leadership of the way, that the kingdom would come to reign over all the earth. As we moved into chapter 2, the content was so dramatic that motion picture directors have never come close to doing its excellent justice. The very spirit of the Davidic son entered into the 12 newly appointed leaders of the kingdom. The scene was reminiscent of Adonai breathing into Adam, and also reflected every major affirmation of the most famous leaders in Israel's storied history. The audience may have expected this validation from heaven to have eliminated all doubt and extinguished tensions, but the opposite happened. Peter addressed the men of Israel, as well as the defunct leadership that held sway over them, and asserted that they were responsible for standing against the way that the kingdom would come to the earth. 3,000 men understood the times and knew what they must do. They rallied with the 12 newly appointed leaders and devoted themselves to bringing the kingdom to Israel. Amen. Underlying these events, there is a subplot. Yeah. The defunct leadership is still in control of the majority of the nation and all of the national institutions. They are growing in their annoyance with this burgeoning new movement. Both parties believe that they are the rightful means by which the kingdom of God will come to Israel. The defunct group sees the validated group as something new and errant. The newer group does not see itself as new at all, but rather claims to be the original way that Adonai promised to bring about the kingdom. As we moved into chapter 3, the scenes took place in the heart of the defunct leadership symbol of authority, which is the temple courts. The newly established leaders and the 3,000 members of the way stand as a direct contrast to the stagnant and defunct leadership in the demonstration of their daily lives. The 12 are demonstrating miracles, concern for the poor, a mastery of the battle plans laid out in the ancient scriptures, and this is an extraordinary threat to the existing leadership 
and a sign that they have been replaced. Wow. So the storyline echoes back to physically weaker Israel in contention with Imperial Egypt. The story echoes back to physically weaker David in contention with the monstrous giant hybrid Goliath. The story echoes back to tiny Israel rising to become the preeminent kingdom in the midst of the stronger Gentile nations of the world during the time of Solomon. The problem, however, is that this is not a conflict between Israel and Gentiles. This is a battle royale. Say battle royale. Battle royale. This is a battle between Israeli leaders who act like Gentiles and those that have the deeds, the teachings, and spirit of the risen Jewish King Jesus. So as we get into our review tonight, the temple of flesh will clash with the temple of brick and mortar. The weaker party will show its spiritual strength. There's a spiritual revolution in the making, and it only has one way, say one way, one way, one kingdom, one kingdom, one king, one king, and one valid group of rightful leaders. You don't have to say that one. <laughs> Saints, we're excited tonight for many reasons, but one of which is that we're happy to say that Elder Eric and his family are on their way back home. Hallelujah! Tonight we're happy to say that many of the foundational themes that have been laid out and that served as plot builders are going to reach the full-fledged clashing of kingdom stage. Tonight we will again see that Adonai always uses the seemingly weaker to overcome those perceived to be stronger. Tonight we will see the narrow way illuminated as one way, one kingdom, one king, and one group of people that are his body on earth, comprising his one temple. So we're going to go through a few slides to refresh, but not to reteach. Oh, that's good. These slides are meant to be like Easter eggs in a modern review. They are things that are included in the storyline, but that the average reader may not have noticed. Tonight, you will see that Psalm 118, not 119, <laughs> which was a national anthem of Israel had never been fully understood until this moment Wow, we are reading tonight. Tonight, you will see that Psalm 2 was a prophetic announcement of the way that the kingdom would come to earth that predated this chapter of Acts by 1,000 years. Tonight, you will see Jesus as the king of the kingdom and his body as the custodians of the way that his kingship will expand into every nation on earth. So as we get started tonight together, let's get into a few Easter egg slides. This is our first slide of the night, entitled, Only One Way. Psalm 67, verse 1 in the ESV says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth. That word way is a singular noun in the Hebrew. It's the word direct, like you guys know. Strong's number 1870. It is not plural, but a singular way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. In a world full of sayings like, there is more than one way to skin a cat, it seems incredulous to assert that there is only one means of salvation for the entire world. However, that is exactly the claim that the Holy Scriptures present. The nation of Israel was blessed to become the custodians of the one way that the nations of the earth could be redeemed. While the scripture never implies that there is any way other than the one way given to Israel, there has always been plenty of speculation as to who in Israel would be the primary means by which salvation comes to the world. Tonight, those speculations are firmly put to rest, and the one way will become clear to all parties involved. Some will rejoice in this news, and others will fight to retain what they perceive to be their own power structure. In our next slide, you will be remember, reminded of the actual promises at stake. The means of salvation for the entire planet did not involve leaving the earth or ascending into some other spiritual plane. Amen. There has only been one kingdom promised, and it is coming to the earth. Hallelujah. This life is called one kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, we have Yeshua spending 40 days speaking to them about the kingdom of God. At the end of the book of Acts, you have Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about all, about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So from the opening of the Bible to the closing of the Bible, the kingdom of God is presented as a tangible reality meant to be the hope and governance of this planet. In Genesis, Adonai's rule is demonstrated over a chaotic world by placing his ruling agency in the garden on earth. In the book of Revelation, that ruling agency is fully established on earth and is represented in a garden-like state. The book of Acts opens and closes with discussion on the establishment of the physical kingdom on earth through the nation of Israel and the Jewish Messiah. The Messiah would be both a priest who mediates between God and man and the king of the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. So again, while this has been boldly forecasted in the law, prophets, and writings, it's also involved a great deal of speculation as to who this mediator and king of the kingdom would be. The two-scroll work of Luke and Acts settles this debate and does so by demonstrating a master understanding of the ancient scripture that preceded their time. Look at this next slide on one king. Looking at Luke 1, 31-33, it says, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be, with, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Going further in Luke 18, 37-38, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, Come on. have mercy on me. Come on. And Luke 20, 41-43. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? Yeah. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the sign of the virgin birth was accompanied by the promise that the eternal kingdom would be given to Jesus as the son of David. 
This kingdom and the throne upon which Jesus would sit was in Jerusalem. Come on. The title of Jesus had nothing to do with the location of many of his ministry activities, but was instead a functional description. It's very important. Jesus, the one king of the kingdom, would rise to power in a similar but superior manner as David. He would appear to be a lowly stump with humble origins, and Adonai would invest in him power over death so that life could break forth in the kingdom that he was the sole king of. Amen. Jesus is both the son of David by descent and behaviorally, and he is the son of God divinely and behaviorally. Jesus is the one king of the kingdom, and every enemy of Adonai will be placed under his feet. All Israel is priestly and kingly, but only Jesus is the one king of the kingdom and the resurrection with the ascension to prove it. So like Solomon before him, Jesus chose 12 special men to serve as the founding and advancing agency of his kingdom on earth. There are many royal lines within Israel, but the king has the right to determine who acts as the governors of his kingdom. Mm. Jesus chose 12 apostles for this special role, and having demonstrated approval of them in the same manner as in the ancient text. You should remember this slide. One group of leaders. So you see Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 18. How was he affirmed? By fire as the leader. That's right. The priesthood in Leviticus 9, 23 through 24 were affirmed by fire, fire from heaven. The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18, 38. The Lord affirmed him by fire, fire from heaven. Then the king of Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. He was affirmed by fire, fire from heaven. Then the visible affirmation of fire on the twelve apostles showed that they were, in fact, the custodians of the way. See, this visible affirmation of fire that appeared in correlation with the twelve Jewish men that were picked by Jesus, it served as an affirmation from heaven that the one king had chosen only one group of leaders to be the custodians of the way, that his kingdom would come to the earth through. This was glorious news for the 3,000 members of the movement that understood that Jesus was the one king. They looked to these apostles for direction concerning the best way to live in the kingdom that they were now recipients of. However, it was terrifying news for the defunct leaders, presently in control of every national symbol and institution. And let's be frank, it's never easy getting adjusted to being fired as in losing your job. <laughs> None of these things were done in private meetings or in secluded places. They were all out in the open near the temple vicinity. The first three chapters of Acts have all taken place at or in very near proximity to the temple itself. This was as public as it was revolutionary. Tensions have risen, and the two groups of leaders, they're going to inevitably clash. Now, it is important to note that this is not as simple as the former group being illegitimate and the newer group being legitimate. Okay. It's not that simple. All of the institutions in Israel were mandated by God, but only one group was acting in accordance with the one way that Adonai wanted to establish the kingdom on earth. As always, <laughs> repentance fixes everything. Well, Amen. In a remarkable display of courage and an expression of Adonai's mercy, Peter voiced two sermons in the hearing 
of the defunct leadership that were aimed at the hope and joy of repentance for the nation and its stagnant leaders. In those sermons, Peter appealed to the predetermined plans of Adonai laid out in the ancient text. You guys are going to remember our next slide, entitled, Seven Titles for Messiah in the Tanakh. Look at the left hand of the screen with us. You have the Netzer, Servant, Holy One, Righteous One, Author of Life, the Christ, and the Prophet. While many Israelites in the line of David may have had Netzer-like associations, only one was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of Adonai. While all of Israel is a servant of Adonai in some way or another, only one fits the descriptions of Isaiah in every regard. While the whole nation is called to be holy, only one Jew rose from the dead and was glorified. He is the Holy One. While the whole nation is called to be righteous, only one bore the iniquities of the nation. He is the Righteous One. While the whole nation is called to bring life to the world, only one person could rightfully be called the author of life. While there have been many anointed men in Israel's history, only one Jewish king is destined to rule the entire world as God's king. The Christ has been set at the right hand of God. And while there have been many prophets throughout Israel's history, Jesus is the one prophet promised by all the other prophets. Peter's sermons and the use of messianic titles serve to drive us to the climatic clash between those who are the one way, bringing the one kingdom under the direction of the one rightful king, and those that have been rejected or that have rejected these things. This is the beginning of a battle royale to find out which group of leaders is under the royal administration of Adonai. So we're about to pray and get into the text. You guys ready for that? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we hope you will glean a better understanding of during this amazing chapter is the difference between believing Jesus was raised from the dead and that in Jesus you will raise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus proves him to be the rightful king that will bring about your resurrection into the kingdom of God on earth that has no death, mourning, or sorrow and literally reforms the planet into what Adonai had intended since before the creation of all things. I think at this point, we should have the counselor stand up and pray with all boldness. Mighty King, we beseech you tonight, Lord, to fill our hearts and fill our minds with what you have prepared for us. Lord, I pray that when we are put under stress or tension or shame, that we would have the same boldness as Peter and John. Lord, I pray that you would speak through these men that have and that we would leave this place having a full understanding of exactly what you want to convey to us, Lord. It's in your mighty name that we pray. and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to ask them, By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Come on. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, yep. there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone, I'm sorry, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Amen. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 <laughs> years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers to, uh, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Yes. And they prayed. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, yeah. brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Well, needless to say, we have a lot of beautiful and powerful content to cover. So, brother, if you would pick up in our first couple of verses, we're going to get started. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were, while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Come on. So saints, this is the beginning of the clash between the fire-affirmed apostles who are doing miracles and those who are in charge of the existing institutions. The size of the clash and the number of participants is going to increase throughout this chapter. We want to draw your attention towards are the initial opponents to the sermon being preached. The first are the priests. The second is the captain of the temple guard. And then third, the Sadducees. This is significant in two ways. First, that everybody mentioned has a vested interest in the preeminence of the temple structure itself. <laughs> it is literally true that their jobs and livelihoods depend upon the prominence of the temple. Second, did you notice who was not mentioned in this group? The Pharisees are not mentioned at all in this initial opposition. Luke also tells us what the primary agitating factor was, namely that the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Yes. Let's start by understanding the party of the Sadducees, and then we will move into why the apostles proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead was so annoying or disturbing to them. Would you guys like to learn about the Sadducees? Yeah! yeah. This is going to be good stuff. Yeah. So let's start with their name, Sadducees. The name in Hebrew, the word by which they were called is Sadukim. In Greek, Sadukaios. The ordinary Jewish statement is that the Sadducees were named from a certain Sadok, a disciple of Antigonus of Sotho, who is mentioned in the Mishnah as having received the oral law from Simon the Just. Now, Epiphanius states that the Sadducees called themselves such from the Hebrew root tzedek, which means righteousness, and that there was anciently a tzedok among the priests, but that they did not continue in the doctrines of their chief. Now, Alfred Edersheim suggests in his book, The Life of Jesus, that the linguistic difficulty in the change of the sound e into u, as in tzadikim into tzadukim, may have resulted not grammatically, but by popular witticism. Some wit may have suggested, read not tzadikim, the righteous, so they're, they're adding a witty name to these people, not Sadikim, the righteous, but Sadukim from the word Sadu, which means desolation or destruction. This comes from their opponents. Now, whether or not this suggestion approves itself to critics, the derivation of Sadducees from Sadikim is certainly that which offers most probability. So, whether or not a witticism may have existed in the first century that involved the Sadducees declaring themselves as tzedek, or righteousness, and the common people believing them to be humorously declaring themselves to be desolation or destruction, is not really that important. It is, however, important to note that the Sadducees believed themselves to be righteous. That is what they believed about themselves. This facet of how the Sadducees viewed themselves becomes even more interesting when you understand their social and political status during the first century. Here's our next slide. 
Sadducees and priests. See that emboldened word there, aristocratic? Mm -hmm. That's going to become very important to us. <coughs> we gain but a distorted image of the Sadducees if we only look at the points of differences between them and the Pharisees. Still, each party had its strong characteristic, that of the Pharisees being a rigid realism, while the Sadducees were aristocratic. Josephus repeatedly designates them as those who gain only the rich and have not the people on their side. This doctrine is received but by a few, yet by those still of the greatest dignity. What Josephus really means is that the Sadducees were the aristocrats, the wealthy euparoi, the person of rank, i.e., from the priesthood. The Newer Testament in Acts 5.17 and Josephus testify that the high priestly families belonged to the Sadducean party. The Sadducees were not, however, merely the priestly party, but aristocratic wow. priests. Wow. So the Sadducean party was primarily made up of the wealthy and high priestly families. They may not have been nearly as popular as the Pharisees with the common people, but they held a great deal of power politically and with the wealthy. Wow. Okay, Dr. Eli Lizorkin Eisenberg oh, yeah. at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in his classes on the Jewish background of the New Testament, which Justin takes, makes it a point to illustrate that most of what we know concerning the Sadducees comes from their detractors. Each of us should be cautious about seeing the movement in purely negative terms. For instance, the Sadducees may have argued for a more literal reading of the Torah and less oral traditions. Additionally, many of the assumptions that they rejected the prophets and the writings and held only to the law of Moses are not documented in history. Rather than being diverted by all that we don't know about the Sadducees, it seems that our time is best spent on what the Bible actually says about these men. Our next slide will highlight some of the key references to the Sadducees in Scripture. All right, let's look at our next slide. This is Sadducee denials. Luke 20, 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. Wow. And then in Acts 23, 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Luke made sure to include that Sadducees deny there is a resurrection in both of his scrolls. Additionally, in Acts 23, Luke wants you to know that they also did not believe that angels or spirits existed at all. Not all priests were members of the party of Sadducees. The party of Sadducees were apparently aristocrats from the high priestly families as well as the wealthy families in Israel that were associated with the high priestly families. You following? Yeah. Yeah. In the coming weeks, we will just demonstrate that priests believed and became followers of the way. Furthermore, we will demonstrate that Pharisees also believed and became followers of the way. It is interesting to note that no one has ever successfully demonstrated from the biblical text that a named Sadducee ever became a follower of the way. Mm. Wow. So as we transition to our next point, you should take notice that the initial opposition to the preaching of the apostles was from the party of the Sadducees. 
This was likely due to their opposition to the resurrection itself, and also the fear that their basis of power was being undermined. It is true that the Pharisees also joined in the opposition. The Acts will record many of their members becoming followers of the way. The same cannot be said of the Sadducees. So let's revisit what verse 2 says about their reaction to the message of Peter and John. So you should recognize this from verse 2. Greatly disturbed. They were greatly disturbed or annoyed in some translations because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Priests, the temple military, and the Sadducees, they were all greatly annoyed or disturbed by the proclamation of the apostles. Clearly one reason is the general denial of the resurrection. That is not at all the biggest issue at hand. The larger issue is not whether Jesus was raised from the dead, but rather the proclamation that in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead would occur for Israel. Let's quickly look at Jesus' quotation of the law in dealing with the party of the Sadducees, and then move on to the prophets and writings. Lastly, we will look at the historical account of the apostles proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let's start with Luke chapter 20, verse 35 through 38. I'll be reading in the ESV. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So in this passage, Jesus clearly stated that the proper interpretation of Moses' words in Exodus 3 requires the belief that the righteous patriarchs of Israel are still very much alive and will be resurrected. This would have been an offense to the Sadducees, but was not particularly offensive to the Pharisees. We won't take the time to lay it out here, but the majority of the common Israelites maintained a hope in the resurrection and also would have tended to have sided with the Pharisees over the Sadducees. This is largely because the prophets and the writings affirm the resurrection of the dead as the hope for Israel. Let's move to the prophets to see that. This is Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The general assertion that there would be a resurrection was not a problem for the people. In fact, it was the hope of the vast majority of all of the tribes. Let's move to the writings in Daniel 12. Daniel 12, starting in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Come on. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So you have the law, which implies the resurrection. We read the prophets who boldly declare it. And now we have the writings illustrating that the resurrection of both of the righteous and the, and the unrighteous in a vivid clarity. The average Jew did not struggle with the idea that the resurrection was the manifestation point of the kingdom of God on earth. The part of the apostles' proclamation that presented a problem for the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the general public was that the resurrection would only occur in Jesus for Israel. So let's go through some of the historical record in the book of Acts, starting with Acts 17, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The audience is not the same in this passage, but the preaching is. Oh, yeah. The apostles and also Paul preached about Jesus and the resurrection. The common assumption is that they are preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. But that is wrong or an incomplete understanding. In Acts 4.2, it helps us understand the difference. It is true that Jesus died and rose again, and the good news is dependent upon that fact. However... What is usually missed is the point, the point of the fact. The point is that Jesus is the one way that the one kingdom will come to, to the earth because he is the one king of that kingdom. Amen. The apostles preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Come on. So as we move forward in our historical overview of the resurrection in Jesus through the book of Acts, You'll need to remember the importance of this subject, hence why we're repeating it multiple times. Yeah. Because our hope is not that Jesus rose from the dead. That is already a fact. Yeah. Does anyone disagree with that? No. 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 It is the fact that Jesus rose that gives us evidence of our hope that we who are in Jesus will also be raised from the dead. Amen. Yeah. This is why Acts 4.2 and Acts 17 record emissaries preaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead that is for us who are with and in him. We're going to move a few verses down to Acts 17, 30-32. But I want to make sure you're connecting some of these points. Both the law, the prophets, and the writings clearly, vividly display the resurrection. No one in Israel other than a select group would have an issue with the idea that there is a resurrection. It is already a fact that Jesus was raised. But who hopes for what he already has? No one is hoping that he will be raised because he already was. Yeah. The hope is that in his resurrection, we will be raised yeah. as well. Yeah. Picking up in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he gave assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. 
So remember, Luke is recording these sermons, and they're not an unabridged transcript. It's not just verbatim. While in Athens, Paul was teaching them about the one king of the coming kingdom. Paul was teaching them about the one way that the kingdom was coming upon the earth. Paul gave them the assurance that Jesus was that king, the king of the kingdom, because Jesus was raised from the dead. However, in verse 32, the people are not referring to his resurrection, as in the resurrection of Jesus. They are mocking the concept of the resurrection of the dead that results in the separation of the wicked and the righteous in the kingdom to come. Let's continue in our historical overview of the resurrection in Jesus through the book of Acts. Acts 23, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he is the king of the kingdom. He can't be the king unless he ascended from the grave. That part of the apostles' message was challenging to every facet of Jewish leadership and laity. However, preaching that the resurrection of the dead is the hope of Israel and the manifestation of the kingdom was not a particular challenge to most Jews. The sticking point is that the resurrection can only occur in Jesus. Are you guys getting this? Can you imagine how revolutionary it would be For you to be a Jew and hear all of these passages about the resurrection your entire life, and then all of a sudden these guys come and say, hey, in that carpenter that lived only an hour from here and died on a cross like a criminal, in him the resurrection of the dead will come for all Israel. Can you see how powerful that is? I think you're starting to appreciate the point. Acts 24 is going to paint an even broader and more specific picture for us. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So the Bible adherent groups within Israel all had a hope in God. That there would be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What the preaching of the apostles confronted Israel with is that there was only one way that this resurrection could occur. There was only one kingdom. There was only one king of that kingdom. The only way that the resurrection would occur would be in Jesus. It saddens us to have to say this. But... For both our local audience and those that will be hearing this teaching in the future, the hope of Judaism, the way, or what we call Christianity, has never been to believe on Jesus and go to heaven. The biblical hope has always been to believe that Adonai has given us assurance that Jesus is the king of the kingdom coming upon the earth by raising him from the dead. Being a faithful member of his body and kingdom means that you will be resurrected into the manifest kingdom of God on the earth. That is the biblical hope of the patriarchs, 
of the apostles and of the believers throughout the centuries. This, for this reason, that's why we await the feast with Father Abraham and his children in the kingdom of God on earth. We as Gentile Graftons will be resurrected together along with Abraham's offspring as sons of the resurrection. Man, it just gets me. As the expectation of going to heaven is nothing more than a temporary station. It's just a temporary station along the way to the hope that is the resurrection in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The belief in Jesus' resurrection is essential, but the point and hope is the resurrection that can only occur in Jesus. Amen. So now that we have finished our overview in Acts, let's go on to look at one passage from the Newer Testament writings and one from the book of Revelation. We will do this briskly and move forward in our text tonight. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, say in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Yes. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Hallelujah. So Jesus was proven to be the king of the kingdom when he was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. The hope of our faith is that those who are in Jesus, meaning the members of his body, will be raised in Jesus at the resurrection of the dead. All right, let's take Revelation 1.5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is saying that the king has risen. Hallelujah. And those that are in him will also rise. Our king is the firstborn from among the dead. But we will become sons of the resurrection in Jesus at the resurrection of the dead that fully manifests the kingdom of God on earth. Amen. So at this point, we're going to jump back into our text. You're going to watch the opposition to the one way, the one kingdom, the one king, and the one group of leaders that Adonai has chosen. This is going to be increasing, so pay attention as we read verses 3 and 4. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. We went from being annoyed to seizing them. It's important that we keep a pace because there are many beautiful things for us to get to. For now, let's just note that even though the sermon was interrupted, it was incredibly effective. (laughs) The total number of believers has swollen to 5,000 people in Jerusalem. That is a large number by any measure, especially when you consider that this has been a relatively short period of time and the city itself was smaller than it is today. Additionally, even when the apostles are in prison, the word of God is not in prison. This reminds us of 2 Timothy 2, 8-10. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I am 
salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So as we move to verse 5, notice that the opposition group is going to get larger. <laughs> the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. So it is obvious that Peter and John have the attention of every facet of the defunct Jewish leadership. Yeah. What may be less obvious to you is that the, the Torah commands an inquiry into the miracles that the apostles were performing. You'll see that in Deuteronomy 13, yeah. 1 wow. through 5. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Before we dig into this, did you get the part where it says to make you leave the way? That's what the purpose of the inquiry is for. Now, this concept in Deuteronomy 13 is like so many others that we have discussed. Nothing is wrong with the Torah. The only thing that is wrong is with the application of it as practiced by these leaders. Deuteronomy goes on to command an inquiry, a probe, and investigation in verse 14. The point would be that every supernatural influence would be examined to determine if the source was Adonai. Now the presence of miracles alone would not be enough to establish a genuine move of God. The miracle would have to be accompanied by deeds and teaching illustrating agreement with the written word of God. The acknowledgement in the Torah that the appearance of supernatural signs is one of the ways that Adonai tests the heart of his nation, and it is highly instructive. Wow. If these verses had been applied in earnest... Yeah then the investigation would have yielded a fantastic outcome. Yep. Yeah. The miracles would have been proven to be authentic, and the practices of the apostles would have been proven to be in perfect agreement with what Adonai had already revealed to the people. Come on. This whole scene should have been confirmation rather than opposition. Wow. Yeah. But ironically, mm. it is this careful investigation that is going to prove rebellion. To Adonai. Uh -oh. But it is not the rebellion of the apostles. It is the opposition party that is in rebellion to Adonai. Wow. And they are going to actually admit it. Wow. Their motives are going to be exposed in this test. They do not want the one way that Adonai brings about the one kingdom on earth that is his. Wow. They do not want to acknowledge the one king of that kingdom. Or... 
They do definitely do not want to acknowledge the one group of men responsible for leading this new nation. Yeah. You guys want to take a look at the opposition together with us? Oh, yeah. yeah. We have an excerpt from the BKC commentary here. Luke's careful description of the Jewish leaders underscores the pomp and power of this assembly. Simple fishermen were in the midst of the highest leaders in the land. The rulers, elders, and teachers of the law including, included the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Annas had been high priest from 86 to 8015 and was deposed. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was priest from AD 18 to AD 36. But apparently, Annas, being something of a priestly statesman, was still thought of by the Jews as their high priest. The assembly had examined Jesus on trial. Now, ironically, they were facing two of Jesus' prominent and bold followers. Nothing is known of the John and Alexander mentioned here. The state of the Judean leadership was in shambles. The men serving as priests were not chosen because of their direct descent from Aaron and their Torah observance, like they were supposed to be. They were chosen because of their pliability in working together in collusion with Rome. Wow. Yeah, so these high priests are not dying and then the other one is coming. They're being appointed. This life from Josephus will give you an idea of the constant state of turmoil and corruption in the succession regarding the office of the high priest. So we will not focus on the left, but you have that text for reference. You have, uh, this comes from Josephus Antiquities, uh, book 18, chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, Cyrenius, who was the governor of Syria, he appointed Annas, the one that we read from in the Gospels. Now Valerius Gratus, he deposed Annas, and then installed Ismael, son of Fabi. Huh. Then he deposed Ismael and established Eliezer, son of Annas. Then he deposed Eliezer and put in Simon, son of Canatus. And then he deposed that guy too and put in <coughs> Joseph, Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law. This is not something that you will learn from the Torah. Our point in showing you this is that the current Jewish leadership is not reflective of what Adonai wanted. And their treatment of the new Jewish leadership is going to illustrate that point clearly. When you remember that Jesus stood before many of these same men less than a year earlier, it serves to illustrate the consistent wickedness of this council and the courage of Peter and John. Yeah, come on. All right, so let's move into our God-mandated inquiry and watch Adonai test the hearts of the men in verse 7, Brother Linton. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name do you do this? So this process is not as simple as an illegitimate government versus the legitimate government. The truth is that these men sat in positions that were mandated in the word of God. And the inquiry that they were holding was commanded by Adonai. However, the men do not accurately represent God and do not have his desires on their mind. The new Jewish leadership is not just brought before them. Some translations phrase it more literally as Peter and John were sat in their midst. And this imagery is powerful and should remind you of Jesus walking into the temple. 
The new fire-validated leaders are in the midst of the defunct leaders that have veered from the way. The reason we keep calling this a battle royale is that everyone in it should have been royal. But only the apostles conduct themselves in the royal way. In any case, the inquiry asks the best questions ever. First one, by what power did you do this? Or by what name did you do this? Both of those questions are going to be answered as directly as any man could have ever answered them when we get to verse 10. All right, come on. We need to keep moving so that we can accomplish everything we want to this evening. But we want you to be remembering that if the apostles had been violating Deuteronomy 13, then they would have rightfully been put to death. They were not put to death because they did not violate Deuteronomy 13. So let's hear verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. Our first impression was that they are incredibly impressed with Peter in these verses. We are. To be sure, however, this also misses the larger point of the book of Acts. Peter is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which you know is the Spirit of Jesus. This means that it was not so much Peter speaking as Jesus speaking through Peter in this moment. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said during his ministry in Matthew 10, 16-20? He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This has only served to strengthen our contention that the book of Acts records the deeds and teachings of Jesus as performed through his body on earth and empowered by his Spirit. In the same way that the Gospel records all of Jesus' actions as having come from the Spirit of his Father, so too does the book of Acts record the apostles' words and actions as having come from Jesus' spirit that is within them. Hallelujah. Let's keep going to verses 9 and 10. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So the Deuteronomy 13 style inquiry has come down to exactly two questions. By what power did you do this? Or by what name did you do this? Notice that Peter and John do not hesitate to answer these questions boldly and directly. However, they do it in reverse order. They start with the name that this miracle was done in, and then move to what power they performed the miracle by. Peter directly said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ, the Netzer. This affirms that the miracle was not performed in rebellion to Adonai, but rather as a fulfillment of what Adonai promised in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 35. Next, 
Peter directly answers what power this miracle was done by. Unfortunately, the dynamic translation of the NIV obscures the direct nature of Peter's answer. So we are going to read it to you in the ESV. We're going to reread verse 10 in the ESV. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Come on. The power that was utilized in performing the miracle is the power of Adonai and is the same power that Adonai used to raise Jesus from the dead. This is not only the direct answering of both questions the council has presented in their inquiry, but it is also perfect compliance with Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. An outstanding miracle was done in the name of Jesus as the Netzer, and it was performed by the power of Adonai expressed in Jesus. If the inquiry has been performed by valid Jewish leaders, the result would have been national revival led by the leaders themselves. They would have rejoiced that the way of Isaiah 35 had been marked by a lame man being healed and leaping up like a deer. However, the inquiry was not performed by honest men. And Peter knows it. The defunct leaders rejected Jesus and are going to reject his body on the earth as well. This only serves to show the reason that they had to be rejected themselves. But let's go to verses 11 and 12. He is the stone you build is rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Come on. So, in this quotation, Peter is doing far more than we'll have time to cover. Yeah. He's stringing so terrors <laughs> at a level and depth that is frankly mind-boggling. Yeah. If we had unlimited time, then we would simply read every verse and go verse by verse and explain <laughs> how each verse relates to David, then to David's son, Jesus, and finally to Peter. But we do not have unlimited time. No, we do not. So let's take a few excerpts to whet your appetite. Psalms 118, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. So the entire context of Psalm 118 which is an actual song to aid in memorization, yes. starts with three groupings of people that owe their thanks to the Lord. These three groups are the nation of itself, the house of Aaron, oh. or the high priestly family, and finally, those who fear the Lord. Come on. Which is probably a reference to proselytes or Aramaic hinting at Gentiles. Come on. Wow. Let's pick up in verses six. verse 6. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? How interesting is it that this is on Peter's mind and heart as he and John face the inquiry. Peter is assured of the Lord's presence with him and demonstrates an absence of fear in their presence. Oh, let's look at the verse 7. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph 
on my enemies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this verse undoubtedly gives Peter confidence in the outcome of this inquiry he's currently enduring. Let's go to verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. See, it is impossible to come to Acts 4.19, where Peter and John are going to say, judge for yourselves whether it is right to obey you rather than God, yeah. without taking this verse into account. Yeah. See, they're quoting to them Psalm 118, and they know it because they're Jews, and this is part of Psalm 118, Ooh. and Peter has this in his mind. Now, even if you could, you will never get past this next verse without doing so. Ooh, verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Wow. Remember, our scene in Acts is a battle royale. Peter and John are standing before the princes of Israel right here, right now. Psalm 118 is not just what they are quoting. It is literally a passage that they are living out through this inquiry. All right, let's go to verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So when you see the words, he has become my salvation in English, it is remarkable to learn that the phrase in Hebrew literally says, he has become my Yeshua. Place yourself in the midst of this inquiry. Peter has just been asked, by what name the miracle was performed. And the first section of scripture that he quotes literally refers to Yehovah and says, He has become my Yeshua. Yeshua. Wow, come on. So keep that in mind because we're going to verse 21. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my Yeshua. Yeshua. We just want to point out, uh, point this out where Peter's quoting Psalm 118, and he's only doing this in two places, verses 14 and 21. This verse is the line before Peter picks up in his quotation. Wow. The mastery of stringing pearls is that his hearers are aware of the context of Psalm 118. Yeah, they are. So can you imagine, can you imagine that as Peter begins to quote the psalm? Every hearer there is beginning to sing the lyrics in their mind in an effort to make sure that he's saying it correctly. The best part is the lyric before Peter's quotation, and it actually uses the name Yeshua. So as we pick up in 22, just remember, out of all of the psalms he could have quoted, he picked a psalm that lists Yahweh's salvation being Yeshua twice, even the immediate verse right before 22 says Yeshua in it. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Yeah. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Ooh. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The most obvious historical reference to this passage is that it was written by David. David was the original stone that was rejected by the defunct leadership in Israel during his time. The Lord chose him and brought Israel into a unified kingdom and glorious victory over the Gentile powers of the world. The second reference is that less than one year before this inquiry, Jesus had applied this very psalm to himself after the triumphal entry. We want to look at it with you. Come on. All right, so we're going to go to Mark 12, verse 6 through 12. 
He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Good perception. So they left him and went away. Now knowing that many of the same people that Peter and John are standing before in the inquiry are the same men that knew Jesus had quoted this very song in regards to himself, really adds color to the scene in Acts, doesn't it? The point is the same in both instances. The corrupt and defunct leaders are having the kingdom taken away from them, and the new Jewish leaders are standing right before their eyes. The actual text of Psalm 118 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what it says in the Hebrew. However, when Peter quotes it in Acts, he says, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. The fact that Jesus' use of the parable of the tenants was targeted at these same men, and that Peter literally says, the stone you builders rejected, makes the point abundantly clear that these men were being confronted as tenants and builders that have feared from the way of God's building. When you guys have the time, go back. Examine the reaction of the people. Look at the questions that were asked by these leaders. Notice the things that prevent them from killing the new Jewish leader or leaders. The similarities are so numerous and so striking that they are impossible to miss. We challenge you tonight. Go back to Psalm 118. Read it line by line and see the richness that it has, especially in our chapter. Since we have more to get to on the subject, we need to hit our next slide. The Expositor's Bible Commentary. You guys are really going to like this. There was in Judaism a frequent wordplay. There's a wordplay going on between the words for stone or even or even, heaven, and sun, bed, which was rooted generally in the Older Testament. Do you guys see the similarity between those two Hebrew words? Yeah. Yes. Evan and Ben. Very, very close together. And, look at this next part, attained messianic expression in the combination of the stone and the son of man images, especially in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, and Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, and which continued to be used through the early rabbinic period. It was for this reason, evidently, that Jesus concluded his parable of the vineyard and the rejected son that we read about in Mark 12 with the quotation of Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And it is this motif that Peter, 
building on the accepted associations of stone and sun, picks up in this quotation of Psalm 118.22. So now that you guys have read this, now that you understand that Evan, or stone, forms that accepted wordplay in Hebrew with Ben, or sun, consider Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 in this light. We're going to read them. Let's read them. Daniel 2, starting in verse 32. It says, The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Jesus is the stone or sun that the builders of the day rejected. But it's also the capstone of Adonai's plan. Beginning and end. There is literally salvation in no other name. Now consider this from Daniel chapter 7. Understanding the wordplay between stone and sun in Hebrew. This is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the very stone that was rejected in the crucifixion is the same as the Son of Man that ascended in the clouds of heaven and approached the Ancient of Days. It is to him that the kingdom would be given and established here on earth. Wow. Yeah. Somebody go ahead and acknowledge that the connection between E. Ben Stone and Ben Son is off the charts. Yeah. It is. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Take a moment to enjoy it. Moreover, Peter is saying this to their faces in the midst of an inquiry that proves both Peter and John were in the way and the princes were not. <laughs> this is a battle royale, and it has a clear winner. Oh, yeah. We think this came one of Peter's favorite ways to display the gospel. Yeah. Yep. It's clear that it stayed on his mind many years after this event. Perhaps it was because it was an effective event. Yeah. First Peter 2, 4 through 9. I'm going to read it to you quickly. As you come to him, a living stone, or a living son... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. <laughs> you yourselves, like living stones or living sons, Amen. are being built up as a spiritual house. Be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, or laying a son, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone or the sun that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone, and a stone or a son of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thanks. We hope that this has enriched your life as much as it seems to have enriched Peter's life. Yeah. Yeah. He's still writing about it later. Yeah. Yeah. We want to go ahead and read Acts 4, 11, and 12 so that we can regain some momentum and continuity with the passage and then continue. So now that you've heard all of that, that was good. listen to it again. He is the stone or sun you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation or Yeshua, is found in no one else. For there is no other name, just like Psalm 118 declares, under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. Now, as aggressive as Peter and John are in this quotation, we don't want you to miss that it is also as hopeful as it is convicting. That's important. The defunct leaders are directly confronted with their sinful actions as an act of grace. However, they are also presented with salvation in the words, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The apostles hammered these defunct leaders with the truth and hugged them with the opportunity to be saved. The actions of the apostles as the body of Jesus on the earth are in perfect accordance Concordance with Scripture. Listen to Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Praise God for that. Here in our chapter, the apostles boldly declare the one way, the one kingdom, and the one king to these leaders, leaving them the opportunity to receive Adonai's instruction and to be moved toward repentance. This whole process bears such a similarity with Jesus that the leaders notice it in the coming verses, and we want you guys to as well. Let's read verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. All right. So we really just have a few comments on this often preached on passage. First, the coming chapters will display many of the priests and Pharisees Becoming followers of the way. Second, this passage really shows the product of the Talmudian process at work in the lives of the fully trained apostles. They are like their master in every single way. There is no longer any conceivable method to deny Jesus or his body on earth. They're the same. Because they are the reflection of Adonai. All future conflict with these leaders is not driven... From a misunderstanding or ignorance, like we saw last time. But it is instead driven from a jealousy over the kingdom being taken from these leaders and given to the new leaders. Let's read verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. (laughs) So last week we reviewed some of the statements that Jesus made while standing at Solomon's colonnade which is the same place that the apostles began teaching before being arrested. Let's revisit a slide with some of the key statements made by Jesus 
on the slide titled, Believe the Ed Evidence. So in John 10, 24-26, it says, The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. John 10, 32, But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? <laughs> and going further in 37 and 38, Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am the Father. So in the same way that Jesus could point to the miracles done in the Father's name, in His Father's name, the disciples are able to point to the miracles done in Jesus' name. They are the owners of the house that have mastered the old treasure and are now bringing out new treasure. This is truly the effect of genuine biblical discipleship, and we should all seek to replicate it just like they did. The apostles have left their opponents speechless in all the same ways that Jesus had left the same group of men without words and speechless. Amen. Let's continue in verse 15 and 16. That's good. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. Now to be clear, these are the words, I mean like, if any, that you would not want replayed on Judgment Day before the Lord of God. That's so true. Out of their own mouths came the recognition that the miracle was undeniable evidence of Yahweh's affirmation on the new leaders of the way. Although they recognized where Adonai's favor rests, they sadly turned their attention to how they can attempt to retain their own power and slow the progress of the leaders of the way. See that in verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Look, when you really engage with verses 15 through 17, the reasons that the current leadership required replacement becomes pristinely clear. <laughs> Let's highlight a few of the most obvious. First, the current defunct leadership was aware that the twelve were the way, and yet did not respond in repentance. Wow. Yeah. Secondly, the current corrupt leadership had consistently responded in this same stiff-necked manner from the time of Jesus' ministry all the way through these events in our chapter tonight. And lastly, these leaders are now actively trying to halt the progress of the way in an attempt to retain their own power. Look, we're going to move forward in our text, but we just want to show you an example of the same chief priest reacting to Jesus in a similar manner less than a year. Less than a year earliest, earlier. Less than a example. year earlier. This is from John 12. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. 
For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. There's an earth-shaking revelation to be found here when you engage with the truth that these leaders were in fact in a position that was ordained by God, and despite this fact, they are plotting against the Son of God and the resurrected man Lazarus as well. It does not matter how much your position is ordained of God. I'm going to say that one more time. It does not matter how much your position is ordained by God or of God. When you harbor sin in this like manner, then you may be certain that Adonai will replace you. This was true of men like Saul who were replaced by David, and it is also true of these chief priests. Moreover, it is true of any ordained leader within the community of God at any point in history. Thankfully, though, there are also always men within the community, men like Nicodemus, or maybe even Gamaliel, that are not filled with these kinds of sinful behaviors. Ooh, may we be like them all yes. the days of our lives. Yes. Verses 18 and 19. Then they called them in again and commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So, you already know what's on the minds of Peter and John as they spoke this reply. Let me refresh your memory going back to Psalms 118 verses 6 through 9. It says, The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can men do to me? The Lord is with me, He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This is clearly what's going on through their minds, as they're quoting this passage, of course. Peter and John are not just trying to be witnesses. The power of the Spirit has turned them into witnesses. They're not trying to witness this is what they are. This is rather an identity than just a function or something they do. Everything from their use of Scripture to their lack of fear before these princes It's a witness that Jesus is in them. It's a witness of Jesus. This is entirely different than trying to give a Christian witness or a prepared presentation, which I'm called to do. These are men men who are living witnesses, and and it is impossible for them to simply cease speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus because they are the body of Jesus on earth, and they have taken refuge in Him already. So we'd love to go into the epistles that John wrote and show you this principle, but there's simply just not enough time tonight. So, as we move forward, let us just remind you of our stance during COVID and reassert that it is as timeless as it is true. So as I begin to read this, I promise it'll be brought back to memory if you've forgotten. This was our stance during COVID. When the government prohibits... That which God requires, or the government requires that which God prohibits, we must obey God rather than man. Amen. Amen. No matter the cost associated, 
We must always obey God over and beyond the commands of any man or form of government. Amen. And the book of Acts is our call to that kind of action. Amen. Amen. Verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Briefly, we'd like to point out that the ESV puts this verse in an interesting way. It says, finding no way to punish them. The corrupted group of leaders looked for a way to punish them, but were unable to find the means to do so. This is because the apostles were the true followers of the way. The apostles in no way had violated Deuteronomy 13 or any other area of the Torah, but instead they had upheld it. Hmm. What is even better is that the testimony of the man healed and the fact that all the people who saw what happened and heard the apostles' words meant that it would be difficult to substantiate any falsified charges. Remember, the ESV said, finding no way to punish them. The NIV says they could not decide how to punish them, implying that they were indecisive. In this case, both translations may be correct. However, you will see in the next few chapters that they both decide to punish the apostles, and they find a way to do so. Yeah. This definitely indicates a malice aforethought and very well may eliminate them from the city of refuge principle intended to save them. Wow. Let's look at verse 22. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So we covered the similarity between this miracle and the one Jesus performed in the same place from John 5 last week. So there's no need to do it again. However, we do want to point out the wisdom of waiting. Remember, Jesus would have walked past this man for decades in his regular temple attendance. And he did not heal the man any of the times that he passed by. This is because Jesus understood the wisdom of waiting. In the providence of God, this particular miracle was deliberately arranged. Even saved for this day when Peter and John walked to the temple. This healing served as evidence that the body of Jesus was carrying on the deeds and teachings of Jesus in every way. And it was reserved for this moment by Jesus. See, the record of Acts shows that Adonai has decisively marked his apostles as the one valid group of men to lead his nation, the custodians of the one way, and the government of the one kingdom that is coming upon the earth. They are the foundation of the one temple that is indwelt with Adonai's very presence. Come on. This is in sharp contrast to the defunct leaders who are currently opposing the way in an attempt to retain their own position of power. In our endeavor to follow after the lives of these men, our deeds and speech must carry the same message. Yeah. There is only one way that the kingdom will come to the earth. And there is only one king of that kingdom. Amen. There are not many paths to salvation. Amen. But instead, a singular, narrow way of holiness found in Yeshua. Guys, let's look at what happens when Peter and John are released. Because you are about to get another excellent teaching on the Psalms from those men. As our brother reads this for us, we've been working to get to this point. So tune in and hear this. You have a new understanding of Psalm 2 by the end of it. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and, his, and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So as we dig into this prayer together, we want you guys to note that it begins with affirmation. That Adonai is indeed in control of everything that he has created. Yeah. And it ends with the acknowledgement that nothing has happened that Adonai did not allow for and plan. This is a theme in the sermons of Acts chapter 2, specifically verse 23, and Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Both sermons make the point in one way or another that these things only occur with Adonai's determination or set foreknowledge. Dear Christian, we are telling you this because you should be comforted that nothing in all of creation happens outside of the sovereignty of your Father. If He has allowed a difficulty in your life, it is for your good. It is for your development. Amen. Next, you should notice that they are quoting the word even in the midst of their prayer time. These men have become such masters of Torah that they string pearls even while they're praying. Guys, the specific passage in view is Psalms chapter 2. Alright, so let's look at the context of our chapter, which is Psalms 2, because we have been hinting at it since our review. Starting in verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So these First three verses are a summary of the collective voice of the nations and their kings. They do not want the one way in which the one kingdom will come to the earth through the one king that Adonai has chosen. The inner circle or the inner desire of these nations of the world as well as their leaders is to throw off every righteous decree. Because for wicked men, the word itself is viewed by them as a restriction to their sinful natures. In short, these verses are the voice of the nations. All right, let's go on to verse 4 through 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. (laughs) The Lord scoffs at them. (laughs) Amen. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. These three verses are a summary of the thoughts and actions of the Father. He's not intimidated by the resistance of the nations or the rebellious powers that control them. Instead, the Father has placed one king over all the world. And that king will rule from the one nation on earth that is destined to possess the kingdom. So in short, verses 4 through 6 are the voice of the Father declaring that Jesus is the one king... That he installed on Zion. So our first section was the voice of the nations. You just heard the voice of the Father. I'm going to pick up in 7 through 9. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. 
He said to me, ah. you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. These three verses are the summary of the thoughts and actions of the Son. He is the Son, or the stone, chosen by the Father to bring the nations into subjection to Adonai. This passage is the Son proclaiming what he received from Adonai. And he is the one king that presides over the one way through which the kingdom of God will rule over the entire earth. Hallelujah. So the first section was the voice of the nations. The second section was the voice of the father. The third section is the voice of the son. Let's go into our fourth section. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These three verses are the voice of the Holy Spirit. Warning, convicting, instructing, and encouraging the nations to choose the one way that God will bring about the kingdom to the earth. These words are instructions for how to relate to the one king through which the world will interact with Adonai. Verses 10 through 12 are the voice of the Holy Spirit, and they end with an encouragement for those who would take refuge in Jesus as the one king of the kingdom. So now that you know all that, can we ask you a question? That's not very convincing. Can we ask you a question? If Psalm 2 is a dialogue following the voice of the Gentile nations, the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and the voice of the Holy Spirit, then why in the world are the apostles praying it in relation to the events of the inquiry in Acts chapter 4? The answer is simple. The leaders of Israel are acting like the Gentile nations of the world. They're rebelling against God's one way, his one kingdom, and his one king. You should notice that through the voice of the Holy Spirit, or otherwise stated, the voice of the Spirit of Jesus, there is hope for the nations of the world, if they will submit to the one king, Yeshua. If this is true for the Gentile nations of the world, then surely there is hope for the future of Israel. Amen. Amen. Guys, if there is any doubt in your mind at this point to the validity of what we are saying about their prayer and Psalm 2, then you should consider how they continued the prayer after quoting the psalm. We're going to restate it in verse 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to fire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So after quoting Psalms 2, they mentioned a few key people. Yeah. One, Herod as the tainted Hebrew authority over the people. Pilate as the violent Roman authority over the people. They collaborating and twisted Gentiles, expressing dominance over the people. Ooh. And lastly, the people of Israel themselves. 
This is to say that members of every facet of Israel are acting like the voice of the nations in Psalms 2. Wow. Their prayer is an affirmation that Adonai knew and predicted this response, but will bring every nation, including Israel, into the one way of Come salvation, on. yeah. into the one kingdom that he has chosen, under the one king that he has set in Zion, yeah. Yeah. and that the one group of leaders acting as his body on earth are responsible first to Israel's salvation and then to the nations of the world. Yeah. Rebellion to Adonai is first expressed in his people, who are the heirs of the covenants, and then expressed in the pagan nations. Salvation is also first expressed in Israel, and then in the pagan nations that turn to him. The Psalm 2 prayer is an appeal to Adonai based on the written word for his will to be done on earth as it is expressed in Psalms 2. The prayer was as moving to the heart of God as it was reflective of his own heart. The proof of that statement is found in the conclusion of the prayer and the actual results. Yeah. Let's go on to verse 29 through 33. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke Hallelujah. the word of God both. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. As Pastor Peyton picks up, remember, they prayed this prayer, and they reflected both the scripture and the very heart of God in the moment. And you just read the Almighty's response oh, yes. to this prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So we've come pretty close to the balance of our time this evening. That being said, there are a few things that we want you to notice before we move on. Are you still with us? Yes. 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 First is that Adonai bore witness to the scriptural prayer given by the apostles and the believers with them as evidence not only in the room being shaken, but by his ongoing empowerment in their daily lives. Second, is that the requests made in the prayer are not for the alleviation of opposition or persecution. Come on, that's true. But simply, that Adonai would enable them to go further in boldness Amen. and supernatural signs in the name of Jesus. Yeah. That's an attitude we can all get down yeah. with. Right? Oh, yeah. This request, request will be answered in the lives of the apostles, and it will also be answered in the life of any believer who wants to follow the one way, one kingdom, and one king. Lastly, let's reread verse 33, where it says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. You should notice that the twelve apostles have been clearly affirmed as the one group of leaders Adonai has chosen. But also that the believers are partaking in the same grace and becoming like the twelve in that they sacrificially reflect the actions of Jesus as seen in the apostles. The beautiful thing about discipleship is that it imparts Christ in you into other men and multiplies the advancement of the one way far beyond what any man could do alone. In other words, what you can do in your own strength. Come on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Mm. Are you noticing a pattern in the book of Acts? The apostles begin to implement what they learned through discipleship. The corrupt leadership around them attacks them. And then consistently, the body grows around yes, them and yeah. begins to implement the teaching of Jesus as seen in the apostles. Yes. Yes. Wow. It's almost like the more that you push them, the bolder they get. Oh. <laughs> there are a few things that we would like to visit with you before we close for the evening. We are preparing to close, but we want to draw contrasts that have been displayed in our chapter tonight. First up, while the leadership of the brick and mortar temple is fighting for control, in the preservation of their own positions of power, the temple that is the body of Jesus on earth is not. The temple that is the body of Jesus is engaging in sacrificial service on behalf of their brothers, literally selling their their possessions. Another contrast is found in the way that the apostles continue to do the word and then teach the word by stringing pearls and praying in direct accordance with Scripture. The defunct leadership of their day, on the other hand, is now aware that the twelve apostles are walking in the one way. That's right. But they're actively trying to suppress the word of God as exemplified in the actions and words of the apostles instead of promoting the word of God. Lastly, we want you to notice Joseph the Levite, called Barnabas, for at least two reasons. First is that he's as a Levite, would have all of the same motivations to protect the prominence of the brick-and-mortar temple as the current corrupt priestly leadership. Yeah. As a Levite, he's entitled to food allowances. Right. He's entitled to an inheritance and a share in the work at the temple. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But instead of trying to protect himself, he's selling the land he does have. Wow. Joseph, however, goes on to lay down his property, his security, all in recognition of the one true way and the leadership of it. He puts it at the apostles' feet. The second reason you should notice Joseph is because his sacrificial actions will be in sharp contrast with two members of the believing community that we will cover in next week's session. At this point, there's one passage that we would like to share with you that Justin will take. Then we want to invite our pastors up to share their thoughts as we conclude our evening. Look, as we meditate on the example of the apostles and the followers of the one way who sacrificed to build up the brotherhood, we would like to read one passage in conclusion that Peter likely remembered during these days. This comes from Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life.
But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. In these days of conflict and sacrifice, the apostles could know that their one king was watching Come on. and would remember what they had done. More than that, Jesus said that everyone who leaves property or family for the sake of the gospel will inherit 100 times as much in the age to come. Additionally, the apostles could know for certain that the corrupt leaders of their day who were first in the world's eyes would not stay first, but instead end up being last. You see, the discipleship that the apostles received prepared them for these days of conflict. If we, say we, We. if we will emulate the example found in the book of Acts as our call to action, then the same will be true of us. We can know for certain that no sacrifice, say no sacrifice, no sacrifice, we can know for certain that no sacrifice in the form of loss of property, family, or even our very own lives will be forgotten. We can know that those who appear to be first now will not be in eternity. But those who appear to be least now will be exalted in eternity. I love you guys very much. I love being a part of this pastoral staff. So I'm going to help you get that last little bit that you just missed. I think we kind of missed it. We know it's the last scripture. We know you've been announced that Pastor Matt and I are going to get up. So I think we missed it. So I just want to read it to you again and help you to grasp it. Is it okay if I help you a little bit? Justin Treasure just said, Additionally, the apostles could know for certain that the corrupt leaders of their day who were first in the world's eyes would not stay this way. Instead, they would end up being last. The discipleship that the apostles received prepared them for these days of conflict. See, there's something about discipleship that you already know, but I want to put it on us tonight and make sure that we're making the right connection. Uh, Koki, would you put up Luke 640? Of the student... The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, somebody say fully trained, trained. is going to be exactly like their teacher. This is what you see in the men who are in the book of Acts because they learned what Jesus did and what he taught and now they're replicating it in their every action. The leaders of their day are seeing it. They're like, yeah, we were just here months ago. It's not lost on them that these men unschooled, ordinary men. But what was their comment back in verse 13? That these men had been with Jesus. These men look and are carrying the very same spirit that Jesus had. Uh, Acts 4, 29 and 30. Acts 4, 29 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They've just prayed and, un- and, 
and, and recounted from Psalm 2. They've just been persecuted. They've just been in the heat and the battle and the fire. And what are they saying? Give us more. Just don't let us lack in the boldness that we're supposed to have. Jesus never lacked in boldness. We are praying that we might not lack in boldness. God, enable us to speak your word. Not our thoughts, not what we're thinking about or what we're feeling. Let us speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What were they in trouble for? God stretching out his hand and healing and performing signs and wonders. They're like, yeah, say it again. Do it again. Because they were fully trained and they were being just as bold because of the spirit of Jesus upon them. So what does that mean for us? That means the discipleship that you're a part of and the discipleship that you are doing for others must be of the same nature that is carrying the spirit of Jesus upon you. Somebody say, upon me. Upon me. Not enough for just these men to have boldness. Let me say it frankly and differently. It's not enough for these men to have a great spirit of boldness. It is, and it must be what we are. Somebody say what we are. <coughs> we have to have the same kind of prayer because we're becoming just like our teacher, and we must do that so that we can then teach others in the exact same nature, with the exact same spirit of Jesus upon us. Stand to your feet in a boldness as Pastor Matt takes over. As you're standing to your feet, how many of you are spirit-filled believers of Yeshua? Does His power reside within you? Yes. Then yes. you are no different than the recipients of the baptism of the Holy Ghost since the day of Pentecost 4. Like Pastor was saying, these men were filled with boldness to proclaim and speak. They received that boldness because they discovered their identity more than just their function. I look at Rhett. Yeah. More than just a fantastic manager at PG Bill. His identity is a bold witness. Yeah. A martus mm-hmm. for the name of Jesus. Come on. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yes, you believe. <laughs> I want to reflect on Peter just for a moment. The pastors laid out how Peter's actions, along with his brothers, here in Acts chapter 4, it's a reflection of his master, Jesus, quoting the very same song and putting the point of truth in the heart of men who denied it. But there's something that my eye caught in his epistle that relates to that very moment of Acts 4 when he's encountering these defunct leaders. Let me read it to you. 
It is 1 Peter 2. And I'll just pick up in 8. And a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. But you. But you are a chosen people. A what kind of priesthood? Yes, Peter was a fisherman. Yes, he was a disciple in Talmud. Yes, he was an apostle. But he's standing in that moment with his brothers, knowing that the self-proclaimed royal priesthood that is now defunct, he is now a participant in the royal priesthood of heaven. So you remember the phrase that they kept saying over and over tonight? They began with it and sprinkled it throughout about a battle royale. Here's our charge for you. Are you living up to the royal priesthood that you have received? And here's where I want you to be introspective. In your inward thoughts. The way that you view yourself. Do you see yourself as royalty? Royalty of God. Because the royalty of God, the princes and princesses, the kings and queens of God's kingdom, do not look upon themselves as paupers and beggars. We do not look at ourselves as being without, but we look to the heavenly realms where our king is seated and the treasuries are inexhaustible. Amen. When you call on his name as his ambassador, as his representative of a royal priesthood, you don't lack an ounce of heavenly power to do what his will is on earth. Do not be the limitation of his kingdom coming to earth through you in a royal way. Church, we say to you tonight, battle royally. Battle royally with a confidence in what and who God has made you. Repentance is the best place to start. Repent from looking upon yourself too lowly. Rather, look at your station as royalty. Gain confidence from that. And praise God, we are not alone. When I hear the hundred times as much, I look in this room and I see the hundred times as much. Come on, come on. See fathers and mothers in the faith, brothers and sisters, and sons in the faith. So with that in mind, we're going to pray with confidence. Amen. More importantly, we're going to act in confidence. You're royalty, men and women. Let's act upon it. Yeah. Heavenly Father, your name is above every name, a name in which no other can have salvation. Lord, our lives are standing here, resurrected and filled with your spirit, because your name dwells within us. Throne and the authority that flows from it, fill the 
your nature, your will, and your salvation. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.